0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
1: Today's story is about cutting-edge technology that could make the world a better place. It could eradicate pest-borne diseases. It could protect crops. It could mean even less pesticides and the food we eat. All sorts of good things. So, uh, what's the catch? Well... The catch is that we have to genetically modify pests, like mosquitoes, to do all of that. We have to make sure that we get it absolutely right, and that the mosquitoes and other pests that we change on their fundamental level are exactly what we think they are, and nothing more or less than that. We have to make sure that we can mess around with the code that governs life itself and, you know, get it right. So yes, there is tremendous upside here. The science behind it is amazing. And yet the whole time I researched this episode, one very famous movie line kept tumbling around in the back of my head. Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Ben Matthews is an assistant professor of zoology at the University of British Columbia, as well as the co-author of a report on this subject for the Pest Management Regulatory Agency. Hello, Ben. Hi, good morning, Jordan. I'm mostly kidding when I start by asking, is this stuff kind of how we get mothra?
2: Yeah, it's it's a fair question. And um, I think that's why this subject is such a hot-button issue for 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 people. It's using a variety of new tools that is going to allow us to change the genomes of organisms that are out there for better or potentially for worse. And I don't think we're in danger of Mothra coming to Vancouver anytime soon, but it's certainly something to watch out for.
1: Okay, well, let's start with the basics. What is meant by gene editing, and and how is it different from... Uh, what we've been doing for centuries, I guess, which is uh, selectively breeding
2: all sorts of animals for characteristics, right? Yeah, absolutely. So as you point out, we've been tinkering with the genomes of, of animals and plants for for centuries now, if not millennia. And we do it by allowing them to reproduce, typically sexually, and then selecting for the plant or the animal that has the trait that we want. And so in this way, we're we're biasing evolution towards the outcome that, that we would prefer, right? but we're not going in there with scissors and needles and, and pipettes and actually doing it ourselves. So the report that we authored is about a new set of technologies that allow us to more precisely edit the genomes of animals or plants. And so it's a suite of tools that include CRISPR-Cas9, but that's just just one of them. And they allow us to specifically target one region of the genome and either snip part of it out or actually replace it with a, a genetic code that we would prefer that region of the genome to have. So in a sense, if you can design one of these experiments to your specifications, you can skip all of those generations and generations of selective breeding. And potentially you can do things that would not be possible uh, via traditional selective breeding.
1: What do we want to change and why do we want to do that with something like the mosquito?
2: Sure. So so our kind of bread and butter as as a lab that uses genetics to study the biology of a mosquito is we might have a question about what a gene does uh, in the normal day-to-day life of that mosquito. So for example, a female mosquito really wants to find and bite a human host and and take a blood meal. Mm -hmm. That's how they reproduce. They need that blood to develop their eggs. And so they use all sorts of things. They use smell, temperature, taste, uh, mechanical sensation, all sorts of different sensory cues to try and find and bite that human host. We're interested in understanding... The genetic basis of that. So if we have a gene in mind, we might want to break that gene and then ask, is that mosquito still able to efficiently find a host in in a laboratory setting? I see. And so what we would do is we would develop CRISPR-Cas9 targeting that gene of interest, and then we would insert something that makes the mosquito... Look different. So, we typically use fluorescent proteins. So, our mutant mosquitoes will glow blue or green or red under a microscope so that we can easily tell them apart from their wild type. Huh. So, in this way, we're just speeding up the process of studying a genetic mutant. We're able to generate it very quickly using CRISPR Cas9, and then we're able to follow it because we've actually inserted a, a visible marker that allows us to track those animals.
1: I think what most people are wondering now is what are we using this
2: technology for and what do we need it for? So scientists are using it for pretty much anything you can imagine. So again our lab is studying host seeking in mosquitoes. I have colleagues who are interested in uh, plant biology and, you know, neuroscience in in mice, rats and and other neuroscience models and they're all able to leverage CRISPR-Cas9 to to study the effects of genes. But this is all in the laboratory setting. So I think part of what our report was touching on is that people have started to think about What happens if we're able to use these tools to impact animals outside of the laboratory setting, and in particular, pests? And a pest can be, you know, depending on how you define it, it can be a mosquito that transmits deadly disease, or it can be a crop pest that will destroy uh, food crops, or it can be a forest, a defoliating forest pest that will cause forests to die and be more susceptible to fire. So a pest in our context is basically any animal that poses some economic or public health risk out in the world
1: why is it becoming a bit of, I don't want to put words in your mouth or or in the, the mouths of the pest regulatory agency, but why is it becoming a bit of a more urgent question?
2: Yeah, so we are in a place right now where people are actively designing reagents. And by reagents, I mean an edited organism that is designed to be released into the wild so that you can replace the existing populations or potentially suppress the existing populations to help control the effects of, of that pest. And so the reason that this report, I think, was so timely and that people all over the world, not just in Canada, are thinking about this now is that it raises with it a whole set of issues about, simply put, will this kind of technology work in in those settings? Mm -hmm. Second of all, what are the potential risks? And and third of all, are there new kind of ethical dilemmas that we have to deal with that are separate from the ethical dilemmas that might be associated with traditional forms of control like pesticides or, or other chemical agents?
1: When I ask uh, about the urgency of it now, what's changed due to uh, shifts in the climate in relation to uh,
2: pests, specifically, I guess, like the mosquito? Sure, absolutely. So this year, uh, south of our borders in, in the United States, we've had locally transmitted cases of dengue fever and and yellow fever, for example. And these are arboviral diseases carried by mosquitoes. That have not been in the continental United States for a very long time. Mm. And the reason that we think there are these cases cropping up now is because the mosquitoes themselves are moving north. And so as winters get less cold, that has tended to be the barrier that prevents a mosquito from establishing a foothold in a certain area and becoming endemic. It might come up for the summer and then leave in the winter because it, it can't handle the cold. But As those cold winters get less cold, maybe we're going to start to see those mosquitoes knocking on our doorstep as well. And so there have been reports of Aedes aegypti found in Ontario, for example. And modeling says that as the weather continues to warm, the range expansion uh, that we see in mosquitoes and other pests is going to continue to march northward. um, Bringing with it all of those potential arboviral diseases, as well as in the crop pest scenario... Uh, the ability to destroy crops that have been otherwise untouched uh, because those pests haven't been here.
1: Have we actually tried at all? I know you mentioned your lab has not done it, but have we tried releasing um, any modified pests into the wild? Has anyone?
2: Short answer is yes. The context at which people generally agree that this is most urgent is to control mosquito-borne diseases and in particular malaria. So malaria is endemic in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's carried by a, a group of mosquitoes called the Anopheles mosquitoes, and it kills millions of people every year, um, especially children and, and other people who have compromised immune systems. And so malaria is, is a very pressing public health issue, and people agree that we should be using all the tools in our toolkit to try and make an impact there. Insecticides have been one of the most popular methods of control, but mosquitoes have evolved resistance to those pesticides. So right. they're becoming less and less effective over time. So you've probably heard about bed nets, and and in particular bed nets that are treated with insecticides that are designed to, um, A, prevent mosquitoes from biting you as you sleep, but then also to potentially kill the mosquitoes if they land on the net. Mosquitoes are now immune to many of those chemicals that we would put in into bed nets. Huh. And so there's a group called Target Malaria that has been working for a long time now, about a decade, to develop genetically modified malaria mosquitoes for release with the specific goal of reducing the populations in the areas where these mosquitoes are going to be released. And so they have released genetically modified mosquitoes in Burkina Faso already uh, with the approval of the, the local government. And it was a genetically modified mosquito that was designed to bias the sex ratio of the offspring, to be more male mosquitoes as opposed to female. Huh. And the reason you would do that is that male mosquitoes don't bite. Right, Male mosquitoes don't take blood. They don't transmit malaria parasites. They're relatively innocuous in, in the population. And so if you can release enough of these genetically modified mosquitoes, you have the potential to create a generation of mosquitoes uh, that are more male than female and actually reduce the biting pressure as they come into contact with humans. So that's being actively done. Do they
1: crowd out the natural mosquitoes? And is that the goal, or do we not want that to
2: happen? Yeah, absolutely. So if if you release enough mosquitoes that are genetically modified, and in this case, you would release male mosquitoes because you don't want to release more bloodthirsty female mosquitoes, absolutely, they would potentially outcompete the wild male mosquitoes. They would mate with wild female mosquitoes, and then the offspring from those, those matings would carry the a genetic modification that those mosquitoes carried. In this case, the genetic modification is not designed to spread throughout the population, and so if you don't like the effects, or if you just want to take a, a pause and kind of study the effects, you can stop releasing, and then what we would predict is that the uh, wild mosquitoes would, would bounce back uh, with a certain timescale. All of that said, target malaria is working towards releasing a different kind of genetically modified mosquito, and that would be one that carries uh, something that we call a gene drive. And a gene drive is actually designed to spread throughout the population such that in theory you could release a handful of mosquitoes today and come back in 5 years and all of the mosquitoes in that environment would carry that genetic modification and so that's still under study they're doing releases in carefully controlled situations uh, in cages and in semi-field environments with you know many many nets around uh, um, that areas of release so that they're able to actually study the impacts of these before we go more broad
1: What are the ethical concerns around creating uh, creatures like this and their potential infiltration into, sure, the, the populations we want them to infiltrate, but also just
2: like the world at large? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've touched on on one of the big issues, which is that this is different then being able to go to a field, spray a pesticide, and then when you're happy with the level of control, you can stop. And yes, it may carry on the wind and, and have a limited geographic spread, but in general, it's going to be um, localized to, to where you first released it. Mosquitoes, as you point out, are different. And so one of the goals of these uh, initial releases of of genetically modified mosquitoes that are not predicted to spread is actually to study this. And so they would mark them with fluorescent dyes. They'd see how far they would go. And then you can use genetics to actually track how far these populations have spread. That said, it's going to be different in every place. And so they've tended to start in relatively isolated areas that are maybe surrounded by deserts that wouldn't be favorable for mosquitoes to survive, or islands uh, where it would be less likely that these mosquitoes would escape. But you're right, this is not something that we can necessarily keep within borders. And and back to the Canadian context, I think that was one of the uh, urgent questions of, of this report is, frankly, the United States is is probably going to be at the forefront of the science and the regulation of these types of pests that might be released. And they're not simply going to stop at the border because we ask them nicely. Right. And so to have a framework in place for understanding the effects of, of these uh, modified pests and also the risks and the potential ethical concerns is something that that everybody needs to be thinking about. What do we do about that specifically? I mean, the
1: government, uh, yeah, and the the regulatory agencies. But to your point, if these things are going to come across the border, is this kind of like something that you're talking to the government about? Because, like, look, this is going to
2: happen whether you like it or not. I, I think that was one of the messages of of the report. And and to be clear, you know, I as a scientist in in Vancouver, I you know am not engaging directly in the regulatory process, but right. uh, we did want to raise this this issue, which is yes, you absolutely have to be talking to not just the places where these things will be released, but the people who are developing them. And in some cases, that's academic labs. It's, it's uh, NGOs. Uh, Target Malaria has a lot of funding from, for example, Bill Gates and, and other philanthropists. But it's also companies. So in the, the um, crop pest world, you can imagine that the same companies who develop Roundup and and all the other chemical-based control strategies are, are very interested in, in this kind of thing. Hmm. And so just having the capacity to think about the potential benefits and then also the potential risks of of these tools at a government regulatory level, that's really important. And and that was one of the messages we wanted to convey to BMRA and others. Could this
1: technology be putting companies like Roundup out of business? If we can just change the genes of pests themselves to not harm particular crops, uh,
2: why do we need pesticides? It's a fair question and, and a great question. And I don't know that every pest everywhere will be amenable to this type of of technology so that's that's the first issue is that on paper gene editing is a relatively straightforward and simple process in practice every new species you try and target takes a lot of optimization a lot of work in the lab and it's possible that there are some species that just won't ever uh, be amenable in in the way that that a mosquito has proven to be so far so that that's one issue is that you have to develop a new genetically modified pest for every potential uh, application, whereas right. a chemical is much more broad spectrum and can target entire classes of insects. The flip side is that that's one of the benefits of the gene editing approach: is that you can specifically target one species and leave all the other ones alone in in theory. And so, I don't know that it will put the chemical uh, insecticide and pesticide companies out of business, but I think this the goal of the people developing these types of tools is to add another tool in the toolkit for for control. When you think about the future
1: of this technology and the applications it has and, uh, you know, whether or not we get to control whether uh, this gets out in the world or not, what keeps you up at night? What's the scenario that could really cause damage? And don't worry, I'm not fear-mongering. I'll ask for the best case in a moment.
2: (laughs) To be honest, one of the things that keeps me up at night is Mm. what happens if we spend decades and decades working on on these types of reagents to release. We spend tons and tons of money, and then we go through with the release and It doesn't work. And when I say it doesn't work, I mean, maybe we release these animals and yes, they spread throughout the environment and they've replaced the wild populations and we can monitor the dynamics at which that happens. But maybe they still transmit malaria or maybe another species that's capable of transmitting malaria just comes in and and takes their place. So that specifically is is a worry as a scientist, which is you're going to lose kind of the enthusiasm for, for a set of technologies if the early explorations into those set of technologies, uh, not to be very fruitful. Now that's, that's a very kind of,
1: that's a very safe doomsday scenario.
2: Exactly. It's a safe doomsday scenario, which is we do what we want to do. Everybody's happy. And yet there still exists mosquito borne disease. So I do worry that these are not going to be the silver bullet that, that people are making them out to be. And you know, that that's one issue in terms of safety I would say it's a wild west because we've never done anything like this before. And so you can think about safety on the ecosystem scale. So again, let's say we're we're perfectly uh, able, technically, to go out and make a local extinction. And and to be clear, that's the goal of some of these gene-driver agents, to locally eradicate a specific species of mosquito. Right. And great, maybe that does have an impact on malaria transmission, and that's fantastic. But what does that do to the food web? What does that do to again the ability of other insects to now come in and inhabit that niche that that the malaria mosquito has has left behind and those are the types of things that we're we're kind of grappling with but to be honest i don't know that anybody can can predict what those effects are going to be because this is not something we've been able to do before and so as we're thinking about this the idea of continually monitoring the impacts during the release after the release and then maybe even 5 10 15 20 years after the release not just on the animal that you've targeted, but also on the ecosystem surrounding it. Plants that those animals might pollinate. Mosquitoes are effective pollinators of, of many different plants. So it's as if we're you know, potentially removing the bumblebee from, right. from their their environment. And so it's those sorts of unknowns that I think we're just going to have to be really cognizant of as we're examining what happens in these first initial release scenarios.
1: Is it wrong that now all I want to do is play that Ian Malcolm clip from Jurassic Park where... He says, you know, you're so concerned uh, with if you could and you didn't stop to think if you should.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that is a, a great mantra to, to keep in mind. Um, there are a group of people for sure who we enjoy. I'll put myself in that camp to some degree. I enjoy kind of pushing the limits of, of technologies in the context of a laboratory because I think it gives us incredible power. To study the biology of animals that have a profound impact on on human health and uh, food security and, and things like that. Sure, but yes, in terms of releasing things into the environment, the should we is an incredibly important question, and who gets to decide is, is the other important question, and you know it should not be i don't think it shouldn't be my decision whether or not to go out tomorrow and and release a, a gene drive containing mosquito in sub-Saharan Africa i you know i don't feel i have that that power to make that decision do we know who does no no in in short i would argue everybody has some right to to be a part of that decision uh, so that's that's a very impractical answer, but we do have to take into account the people who live in a particular area, the people who will potentially be impacted by the spread of a release. And, and as you pointed out, that's going to cross borders, not just the growers and the farmers, but the people who care about the environment and potentially what, what goes into their food. Those individuals all have a right to uh, be a part of, of making these decisions. And setting up a framework where you can actually have those discussions is is something that is still in the early days. But it's another thing that we pointed out in this report is that, you know, we have to move beyond the kind of typical regulatory models where you open up something mm-hmm. for public comment for two weeks and, and people write in on a web page and then it goes somewhere to be taken under consideration by by somebody in government. And then a decision is made behind closed doors and, and we never know the details of those discussions. So I think something like this feels bigger and to account for that, we also need to think bigger in terms of the public engagement and discussion with, with stakeholders and rights holders who are going to be impacted by these releases. Last question
1: then. We've talked about the risks. We've talked about ethical concerns. We've talked about uh, ways in which it could go horribly wrong. Why is it worth doing this? What does the world look like? How different does the world look if we get it right? What do you see uh, in that scenario?
2: Yeah, and and... It's a fantastic question, and it's what drives a, a lot of this research. So potentially, we have a world in which malaria is is not a problem anymore. And that is what drives people uh, who are developing the genetically modified mosquitoes that are going to be released and will potentially curb the spread of malaria, and that will save lives. It will save many, many millions of lives over over the long term. So in the public health world, that's what what people are looking at. In terms of food security... As pests move, as the climate changes and growing conditions change, I think we don't actually know how we're going to feed the global population in the next 20, 30, 40 years. And we're going to run into scenarios that we haven't yet encountered, which is novel pests in places that they haven't been before. And we are going to need tools to control them. And I personally don't believe that chemical insecticides, chemical pesticides are are the way to go. If only because the animals are evolving resistance, and and we have to be able to kind of develop new sets of tools that are going allow us to to combat the evolution of those those mosquitoes and those crop pests against the the chemical control we have. So I think a world in which gene editing is proven to be safe and effective, and and that's still an if. It needs to be proven safe. It needs to be proven effective. But we can increase food security, and and we can save lives. And uh, I think that's. What we're trying to do. It's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve every problem that we run across as, as the climate warms, but it's going to be another potentially very powerful tool in, in our in our chest to actually tackle these very important and, and uh, very particular problems as they emerge.
1: Ben, thank you so much for this. It's fascinating and, you know, a little scary, also a little hopeful. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And, and thanks so much, Jordan. Ben Matthews from the University of British Columbia. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find all of our episodes there. You can also find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can write to us, tell us your fears of genetically modified organisms, and you can find us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also call us, 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available in every podcast player and, of course, on your smart speaker if you ask it to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.
0: In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to.